This is part two of my interview with Nylan McBain, author of Women at Church, Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact, published in 2014. In part one, Nylan and I discussed some of the challenges that we face in the church and as church members in gender relations. In part two, we talk about possible solutions, and Nylan describes some ways that we can be innovative and deliberate in the way that we incorporate and represent women in the church, and also about our obligations and potential as members of the Relief Society. Just a reminder, we are beginning our fall fund drive, and if you are a fan of the Mormon Women Project, please don't forget to go to www.mormonwomen.com and donate in any amount to help support our website and transcription efforts. So I want to talk about these spheres of influence, you know, and and really get down to the nitty-gritty now about what we can do as members of the church in our spheres of influence to improve things for women in the church. And Women at Church, your book, talks about how to do so without any alteration to the church handbook. That there are ways without even changing the handbook to be creative and innovative in the ways that we incorporate and represent women. So that hopefully we we can, as women and as girls in the church, start to develop or expand on that sense of belonging and ownership and stay, you know, and and grow in our testimonies and in our empowerment in the church. So what are some examples of this kind of creative change at the local level? Um, Well, one of the very first things that I, I talk about in the book is visibility. The imbalance of the men and women who are represented to our, our average membership is astonishing. And and a lot of it is statistically built into leadership positions, as I was mentioning earlier. You know, you have three women who attend or counseling, you have many more men and even on the local level. And then of course that imbalance becomes exacerbated as you go up because then you have high councils and then you have state president you know, high councils and state presidencies, but then of course you have the seventies and and area authorities and all the way up and and you don't have those same levels represented for women. Um, You don't have a state relief society board, for example, that travels around and speaks to wards. You don't have a sort of equivalent of the 70 where all these women who are responsible for the global church uh, really have the responsibility to be administrators and visual representatives of the church you don't have um, an active, uh, you don't have a, a very visible general Relief Society board. There is one, they're, they're, and they're remarkable women, but they don't act as the 12, for instance, in their visibility and in their influence and in their administrative responsibilities. So, I mean, you just have this incredible imbalance in the way that members see women administering and influencing uh the church organization. And and I'm separating that from, you know, gospel influence, right? And this is, I think, where a lot of people don't understand. Like back to your very first setup, this is where I think a lot of people think, well, you know, I'm so happy as a member of the church. I'm so happy as a woman in the gospel. Is a woman in the gospel? Yes, because the gospel is played out in our private lives 
in our ways that we minister to each other, in our families, in the way that we show compassion, in the way that we do charitable service, in the way that we bless each other's lives. That is the gospel. And it is absolutely opportunities to bless each other's lives through the ministering of the gospel are not limited to men. And I think that's where women feel their power. That's where they feel their equality come from. And that is powerful. That's amazing. And that's wonderful. And that's right. What we're talking about is church administration, which is the earthly institution that's been built to be the scaffolding, um, in the words of President Lee, to that gospel administration. And that's where this highly gendered imbalance is being experienced. And so the first thing is, on a ward level, acknowledge that. Acknowledge that unless you have female speakers, you've got men sitting up there um, every week. You know, you've got male high priests coming, I mean, male high counselors coming to to speak. You have state presidency members coming to speak. You have women who do speak, rarely speaking as the closing speaker of the meeting. This, this sort of, you know, we have this unwritten rule that there's sort of a, a progression of authority and progression of ability, even, as you go through the the meeting program, right? You always start with a youth speaker because <laughs> nobody expects the youth speaker to have any authority or ability, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have a woman and then you finish with a man, right? And so so thinking about all of these things, all the things, all the ways that these things are represented, you know, when you have word, word um, conference and you have the leaders, you're sustaining your leaders, do you have the State Relief Society president sit up on the stand so that people can get to know her People can see her. I, I just think that looking at the opportunities in our ward for increasing the visibility of our girls and our women is the number one thing that we can do. And as I said, I, you know, I feel like in my ward, I still have a long way to go, even, you know, even just in the, in the brief time that I've seen the few examples that I have. But I think making sure that, that they're represented on the ward level is, inc- is really crucial. So a few ideas I give in the book, for instance, making sure in our primary and in women's rooms, that our general primary and young women's presidencies are represented in photographs, just the way we often have the first presidency and apostles represented in photographs. Making sure in the Relief Society room, the Relief Society presidency is represented in photographs. Um, making sure that the stake or ward Relief Society presidencies are represented in ward or state conferences. My stake actually does a great job of this. The stake Relief Society president speaks at our state conferences. It's really great. She, she represents not just the Relief Society, but she represents herself as a leader of the stake. And I love that. Another thing that the, the stake can do is um, make sure that, that the high counselor has a female speaker join him on high council Sundays. It can be um, a woman who's really recently re- returned from her mission. It can be a member of the stake Relief Society presidency. It can be, you know, the high counselor's wife. It just... Make sure that, that women who are in leadership positions or who come from other places in the stake are represented so we have more female representation. You know, challenge, the wards can challenge themselves to put a female speaker last. They can challenge themselves to have all female programs, things like that. I think having the bishop talk about and reference the Relief Society president and the Relief Society presidency in his own talks to the ward and his own communications to the ward are, are important. You know, I have this other idea of having um, young women be the ushers for sacrament meeting. You know, as my example of of passing out the Mother's Day chocolates, ask 
the young women to be responsible for linger longers. Ask the young women to be responsible for ward activities. Ask them to be responsible for, you know, um, whether it's ushering or some or musical a musical number or preparing a certain sacrament meeting, things like that. That kind of thing is important too. Oh, another example I had from my own ward was we went to a assisted living home, and the young men and the young women were responsible for the sacrament meeting. But the young women were responsible for the musical number, and the young men were all responsible for the talks. <laughs> and so this was right when I got called to be young women's president. So I was, I just went up to the young men's president, and I said, you know, next time we do that, the young women are going to do the talks, and you guys get to do the musical number, you know. <laughs> Being aware that the young women often get defaulted to be the musical number, and, the, and men often are, are the default for conveying the wisdom of the doctrinal exposition in the talk. Being aware of those things and always being willing to, you know, shift, shake things up, um, I think is, is the very first thing that we can do in our wards and stakes. And there's flexibility built into the handbook, right? That allows for this kind of innovation. Nowhere in the handbook does it say a man has to speak last. Right. <laughs> that backfired on me once, by the way. I was really excited. My ward asked me to speak, to be the final speaker. Um and the man before me left me about three minutes, <laughs> but um, so that can go either way. But, it can um, go either way. And you know what? Um, I also hear stories all the time of women declining, and right. that's, that's a whole other thing that I'd love to talk about. If if you're if you're willing to go that direction, yeah, um, let's let's talk about that because I've heard that too, where women say, "I don't I don't want to speak last. I don't want to speak at all." Or they decline the invitation to sit on the stand, or they decline an invitation to attend a meeting. Mm-hmm. And I, this is kind of the, I think this is the, I think this is the next frontier for this discussion about women in the church. I feel like our general leadership would like, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons I, I say this, a lot of evidence I've had, but I feel like our general leadership wants women to take more of an active role in straightening out some of these imbalances. And I feel like they certainly are in a position to do things on a large scale and on an institutional scale, but there is a desire for women to step up themselves. And I feel like the next frontier in this conversation is helping women understand that stepping up and being willing to embrace the discomfort that might come with some of these conversations and some of these new perspectives and some of these challenges, that is obedience. And it's very uncomfortable for some women. And I'm fascinated by this subject. Um, It was kind of, I I dealt a little bit with it in my book and, and I have some theories but it kind of came up for me again after this last general conference when you wrote such a marvelous blog post about what it meant for there just to be one woman speaking at general conference. And, you know, to be fair, we were comparing it to two women who usually speak at general conference, which is great either. But, yeah. but the, kinds of, the kinds of comments that you got on our Mormon Women Project Facebook page just really kind of set me back into this, this exploration because there were so many comments about how, you know, just for being aware of this, you were being disobedient. Just for questioning this, you were being disobedient. And there were a lot of comments about, like, you know, well, if, if the prophet had wanted another female speaker, 
he would have assigned them. And to me, or or there were also quite there were also statements about um, I don't see the messenger, I just hear the message, right? Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to study right now why it is that some women sort of step away from the opportunity to to claim sisterhood. Because I that's the way I felt. I felt it was I felt some of those comments, and I feel a lot sometimes some of the some of the hesitation. It's a um, betrayal of that of that ownership that I think you and I were talking about earlier. It's an effort to step away from being responsible for the, the way the church runs. It's going back to that idea that if the prophet that the prophet is is the only one who's responsible, and I have no I have no responsibility for initiative or ownership. To our point earlier, women have not been raised to expect mm-hmm. step. They, they don't have that expectation of themselves that they will have to step up. Men, they are raised with the expectation that church service means sitting in tons of boring meetings and sitting up there on a stand looking like you're really interested, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the expectation our boys and young men are raised with. And our girls are not raised with that. We get a free pass. And it does mean that we're exempt from a lot of meetings and from a lot of, you know, boring administrative stuff. Yes. But what I think we're seeing is that is that we're paying the price for that lack of ownership that women enjoy and get away with during their young adult years. And and I, I don't think um, that's sustainable for healthy church growth and administration. I think women do need to step up. and. You know, I'm attending all my ward council meetings and all my bishopric meetings and all of that now. And of course, there are times when I'd rather just sleep in on Sunday mornings. But, you know, I, I, I think looking at it as an honor to represent and in the calling to represent my people, my sisters, my girls, my women, I feel that to be a, spe- a special privilege. I also think that some of it stems from this difference between the gospel and the church. I feel like gospel ministration is definitely the sphere of women, womanhood. It, we are, we're so good at it. Women in the church are so good at ministering. It's in that private domain, mm-hmm. and we feel powerful. We feel like we have influence. We feel like we have authority. And when you tell a woman that she actually has to expand that influence and authority into this other domain, into this other sphere, the sphere of church administration, it's first of all, it's scary. First, secondly, it's an indictment of the power that she's built up for herself mm-hmm. in her own sphere. You're telling her it's not enough. It's not enough that you're good at gospel and gospel ministration. It's not enough that you're good in the, the private sphere. You have to have influence in the in a larger sphere too. And I think that's the main thing with activist groups like like ordained women that I think backfires with mainstream women in the church is you say. What you do is not enough. You think you have equality. You think you have power, but you actually don't. Well, the truth of the matter is, in a gospel sphere, in a sphere of charity and ministration, women often do have equality. They do kind of control the, you know, the, the, the actions, they, the decisions. They do have, you know, they do, Mormon, Mormon mothers do tend to have more influence over children or over um, charitable acts or over neighborhood community, you know, community um, relations. But what we're saying is, yeah, we we got to, you know, we got to take that to the gospel, to the ch- church administration level. And at that level, 
you don't, you're not equal. You don't have that same expectation of influence. And when you say that, they can hear it as being what you do is not worthy. What you do is not of value. Those areas in which you do feel equal and powerful, they're not enough. Well, I think another place that people get stuck is that we get stuck with these words, power, control, authority, influence. And so sometimes, and this is what I tried to do in that post, it's helpful to step back and say, what is our ultimate goal here on earth? What's the purpose of the church? And is the way we're doing things now fulfilling that purpose for women? So I wanted to put that question to you. Like, what is the ultimate hope? What is your ultimate hope? And what is the gospel's ultimate hope for women in the church? Yeah, no, it's it's a great it's a great question. It's a question that I got asked a lot um, when the book came out. You know, if if not ordain women, then what? And at the time, I kind of really shied away from giving a you know a, an ultimate a, a vision, and I still sh- I still shy away from it. But I do think for me, the answer is empowering the Relief Society and excavating the Relief Society and really building an institution in which that that sacred space for women has the power to really enact its global mission. Right now, I believe that the Relief Society is handicapped in carrying out its global divine magnificent mission. And if we look at a future in which the priesthood organization is responsible for administering priesthood ordinances, saving priesthood ordinances that link us together as children of God and allow us to return to live with heavenly parents. And then we look at the Relief Society as a global service organization that has untold capability to serve and to minister and its actions are valued on par with those priesthood ordinances, then we're getting something closer to what I believe the eternal gender structure may look like. Mm -hmm. Because then you have men and women who by necessity, you know, have different bodies and, and different biological responsibilities. But you have them serving needs that are both crucial and needed in true teamwork. And that's not to say that men can't minister and women can't hold the authority of the priesthood. I think women act in the name of God through the power of the priesthood all the time. I mean, I think that we're getting closer to a general acknowledgement Mm -hmm. that women hold priesthood power by virtue of temple covenants. That is different, I think, than, than being responsible for administering temple ordinances, right? So what I'm saying is priesthood is shared, ministry is shared, but there is a teamwork element where somebody plays a certain position, just like they do on most good teams, right? But those certain positions are very specific, and they're of equal importance and equal value, and they receive the same attention, and they receive the same, they have the same influence. And that is kind of where I would love to see us get to. And I think the bones of that are in our current church structure. Um, and I love that. I think that's the, that, that that potential is there is remarkable and one of the reasons I stay. But as I mentioned earlier, that magnificent vision of the Relief Society is currently subsumed 
in a culture where priesthood is entirely patriarchal and priesthood is the overwhelmingly dominant force and value of what we do as a people. And I would love to see that change in the future. Are you optimistic about the direction that the church is going regarding these issues? Um, um, yes and no. I mean, I don't know that. I mean, I think as long as we continue moving forward, I'm optimistic. I think, you know, we can look to uh, the new Relief Society presidency. I think the, the, the women that are being called are truly remarkable. They have a very service ministerial focus, which I think is wonderful. You know, I, I, I think that there are, I, I know there are lots of conversations going on within church leadership. I don't know exactly what they're about. I don't know what kind of changes we can expect to see. I think anything is good news, right? Changing names, changing um, giving giving more official authority to the mission president's wife. I'd love to see that happen. And I think that that's a definite possibility for the future, near future. Um, you know, things like that. I think as long as we continue to move and then we see these, these, these small steps, then I will remain optimistic and I will remain grateful and tethered um, and determined to continue doing the work. If I think that this ultimate vision of gender balance and ministerial and, you know, administrative um, practices as a, as a equally valued team partners, is that going to happen on this earth? I, I don't know. I, I probably, I actually doubt it, but I, I think we're asked to believe in the church. We're asked to believe in a lot of ideals that will never happen here on earth. We're asked to, we're asked to believe in ideal families. We're asked to believe in you know, happy marriages where all the children stay in the church and we're all sealed mm-hmm. together and we're asked to believe that we can spread the gospel to the whole world. We're asked to believe in a lot of really outlandish kind of extraordinary things and it doesn't stop us from working towards them even if we're not going to be able to accomplish them before the second coming. So I kind of put that in, I put my vision in that camp. Well, Nylan, thank you so much for sharing that vision with us and, um, for chatting today. I hope everybody reads Women at Church and um, and comes to the Mormon Women Project to to find quotes of women and other ways that you can integrate and, and value and represent women in your ward and stake and family. And I'm so appreciative, Nyla, of, of the way that you've changed me and helped me to claim my own personal sphere of influence and believe in my authority and power and potential for leadership in the church. I just want to make sure that everybody knows that even though I started the Mormon Women Project almost 10 years ago, you are the one who has given it its new lifeblood, and you're the one who's doing the day-to-day operations and really making it continuing, you know, allowing it to continue to be the amazing resource that it is. I'm, I'm deeply grateful to you. Well, it's a great honor. Thank you, Nyland, for joining me today. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.